Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There is a story for everyone here. Because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. How many of you want to learn more about the art of negotiation? Well, my friends, I am so glad that you have decided to show up to today's episode with the leading authority on the art, science, and practice of negotiation. My guest today is none other than Chris Voss. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, Chris, during his 24 years of experience with the FBI, many of them spent uh, as the Bureau's lead international kidnapping negotiator. Chris engaged with some of the world's most dangerous criminals in some of the most high-pressure situations imaginable. Chris began his federal law enforcement career as a SWAT officer at the FBI's Pittsburgh field office. Determined to join the Bureau's elite hostage negotiation team, he spent five months as a volunteer at a suicide prevention hotline and honed his powers of persuasion with people who sometimes had to literally be talked off the ledge. Chris rose through the ranks of the FBI hostage negotiation stationed in New York, eventually becoming a lead crisis negotiator and a key player in the New York City Joint Terrorism Task Force. From there, Chris focused, became international in scope. In 2008, Chris transitioned to the private sector, founding the Black Swan Group. As founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, he draws from his wealth of knowledge and experience to train businesses and individuals to become highly effective negotiators in their own right. The firm empowers business Uh, executive, public servants, and other individuals with a crucial set of tools that enable them to effectively negotiate for themselves. Chris has an awesome book out called Never Split the Difference. It's one of my favorite books. Highly encourage you guys to go and read that book. Uh, It's available anywhere. Literally, books are sold. But I, I guarantee you guys are going to love this conversation between me and Chris. Uh, I wanted to try and get to 
many, many uh, different areas of negotiation as I possibly could during this conversation. So if you do get something from this, and I have no doubt that you that you will, then please share it around to your friends and family. Let this one go as crazy as possible. Help show your support uh, to Chris and the Black Swan team by also uh, promoting this one on your social media platforms too. And also go get a copy of uh, Chris's book. It's an amazing read, very easy to read, uh, mind you. Uh, and it's very, very uh, entertaining and knowledgeable as well. So, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to learn the art of negotiation more efficiently and effectively as we journey into the story box today together as we also listen to the incredible story, the advice and the wisdom from none other than Chris Voss. Jay, it's my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for for making the time. I was just saying to you a moment ago, we finally made this happen. Uh, so I really do appreciate your your enthusiasm, I guess, for wanting to be on my show. Before we dive into your great backstory, which I have I've heard a little bit about and I've read in in this book, um, I have one question that I've always wanted to ask you, really, and that is. What does success look like for you? Yeah, well, um, the thing I loved about being an FBI hostage negotiator is we get to help people sort of reclaim their lives. Mm. And in a different way, we're doing that now. So, So what success looks like for me is when we get feedback from somebody who made a great deal or they went into a dynamic some communication dynamic that they were failing at and uh, they succeeded, you know, they got a raise, a woman got a raise or somebody was having trouble getting a client to respond. They got the client to respond and made the deal. And the context that these are described to us is it's never at anybody else's expense. Mm -hmm. And every time we get a, we get feedback. I get it directly. Somebody on a black swan team that they're coaching gives it that success to us. Mm-hmm. All the other stuff is a you know, is icing on a cake, a byproduct. Mm-hmm. But we help somebody have a success, not at somebody else's expense. Mm-hmm. That's what success looks like to me. I love that. And I didn't mention in the intro that you are the founder of an incredible company called the black swan group, which we'll no doubt get into in just a moment. But I'm curious, like having said that you you love helping people and I mean, you talk about negotiation for literally a living. You've been on so many different shows. You've been asked many different questions. I have no doubt about negotiation. Do you ever get tired of talking about negotiation? No, you know, <laughs> no, I don't. Um, that was one of the things that we're talking with about a potential employee today because my son's the president of my company mm. and our best negotiator. Actually, he's a better negotiator than I am. And it really, the three of us that are, you know, our thought uh, processes spring out of this collaboration between me and my son and this guy named Derek. Uh, Brandon, by the way, is uncredited co-author of the book. I mentioned right. Derek in the book, in the acknowledgments. Derek is our best coach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I do more of our uh, public speaking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're each kind of handling a different tent pole, but we talk about it all the time. I mean, that's what we told this guy that we recruited. I said, you know, you got to understand, man, we breathe this stuff. 
you know, we talk about it all the time. We love talking about it with each other. So mm. no, I don't, I don't get tired of talking about it. It becomes like second nature, right? For you guys. It really, it really has. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And there's some people that were coaching, you know, you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. Mm. So in a couple of companies, we're coaching a couple of corporate executives simultaneously. And these guys have as much fun with it as we do. I mean, they start talking about it all the time. And, it, and they get to the point where you know, if you get really good at something, pretty soon you're thinking up your own rules. It's within the context mm -hmm. of what somebody's teaching. But, you know, one of our one of our longtime clients, the other day we're interviewing him for uh, this thing we did on Facebook. And he said, uh, well, yeah, you know, we, we got to do, uh, we, you know, you got to gather data with your eyes. You know, you listen with your eyes, you gather data with your eyes, which is look at their, their body language, look at their look uh, on their face. Mm. And I wrote that down, gather data with your eyes. Oh, that's really good. And later on, I said, man, man, that, that's cool. I said, how long, how long have you been saying that? Where'd you hear that originally? And he said, oh, I, I had to have heard it from one of you guys. <laughs> and I said, no, that if uh, I'd have heard, I'd have known if it was from us, it's <laughs> that good, mm. you know, but the whole point was he's kind of at the top end of performance where he's making up his own rules and having a ball doing it. Mm. So even, even at the level that you're at, you're still learning from other people in terms of negotiation and how to better negotiate. I find that interesting. Yeah. We're learning from other people. We'll bring in, you know, in coaching, they'll come up with new situations. And if we coach them well, of course, they'll come up with an adaptation that we hadn't thought of. Mm. So between the coaching and like, like Brandon, he'll do something in a negotiation that none of us ever did before. And he'll call me and he says, this, this went really, really well. And I use this skill, like not that long ago, he said, you know, I use the calibrated question. I close the deal with a calibrated question. And he told me what he said. And I said, well, you close a deal and that's inside our philosophy, but that's a combination of two ideas that we never combined before. So that wasn't a calibrated question. We got to think up a new name because you invented something new in, in our strategy. We, we got to add it to the ever growing list. I like yeah. it. So is there, it kind of brings up a question that I did have for you, which is old school negotiation versus new school negotiation. Do you think one is better than the other or are we getting better at ne negotiation in general with a new school approach? You know, I, I think, yeah, this is going to sound very self-interested. We are so much more emotional intelligence based, which is a, tax strategic advantage. Mm. So if you want to refer to new school as being more emotional intelligence, more positive sum game, an old school haggling, bargaining, zero sum game. Now my Harvard brothers and sisters try to get people out of that with a more rational approach. Mm. And they were really just starting to stumble into emotional intelligence in their learning curve about the time that I came along. And so we're an emotional intelligence, you know, an EQ. I mean, that's a relatively new concept. I mean, that's really, really the last 10 to 15 years. And you throw in neuroscience, which is new. Mm. 
Mm. So the new school stuff is a, is a combination of all of that. And I think our tactical advantage is we do it for a living. Mm. You know, like we eat what we kill. And the vast majority of our comp- competitors, if not all competitors in a learning space, they're attached to a university. They don't eat what they kill. You know, they're getting a teacher's salary. Yeah. And so, you know, they're not out there battle testing the stuff every day like we are. You brought up emotional intelligence, which I'm interested in, 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 the, in the sense of does everyone have emotional intelligence to the point where they can enhance it to that, that kind of level of being able to negotiate properly, like to, to understand another person's emotions, like just to acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah. I am a big believer in the Daniel Coyle school of thought, if you will. He wrote a book called the talent code and it's, it's one of our recommended books. And Coyle says everything is learned. Mm. You know, when you were born, you were a blank slate. Now, yeah, you can't teach somebody to be seven feet tall. <laughs> you know, but oh, other than that, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, Michael Jordan was not the most physically talented person who ever played basketball. Yeah. There are plenty of people that never made the NBA that could run faster, jump higher, were stronger than he was. He taught himself to be good. He learned it. And, you know, and I, I can remember actually one time, I, you know, a number of years ago after the Bulls broke up, and forgive me for the American basketball analogies, but I saw a game between the Lakers and between the Portland Trailblazers and Scottie Pippen mm. is going head-to-head against um, uh, the Lakers the Lakers superstar that was killed in a plane mm. crash. Oh, Kobe. Um, I, Kobe yeah, Bryant. Kobe Bryant. Yeah. And – in a head-to-head matchup, I thought that Pippen was clearly the superior athlete, much more gifted physically than Kobe. Kobe was a superior player mm-hmm. based on his mental approach to the game. And, of course, the Lakers beat the Trailblazers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pippen, away from the Bulls and Jordan and Phil Jackson – Never really got anything done. But, you know, so that, I, to me, that's a difference in physical gifts versus mental attitude. Um, uh, Pippen, more physically gifted. Kobe, the more accomplished. Mm. Based on what was between his ears. So what, in your opinion, separates a great negotiator from a, just a mere good negotiator? Um, coachability, the willingness to learn, you know, the, the ability to learn, because then if you're coachable, a great negotiator is, a, is also a great listener. And there isn't any negotiation book out there, none, that doesn't rank listening as an advanced skill. Like no matter who, what school of thought it is, whether you're straight, Harvard, getting TS, rational, you know, your emotional intelligence, really emotional 
tactical emotional intelligence, which is what the Black Swan Method is about. Jim Camp start with no, Stuart Diamond's getting more. Mm. Everybody puts listening up there as an advanced and consequently competitive advantage to the great listener. Mm. And I think that's that's one of the real issues. I mean, if if you're explaining you're losing, if you think negotiation is a battle of arguments or out arguing the other side, the only thing you will never be better than a B student. Yeah. And you're going to have trouble being a B student. You're probably more likely be a C student. Yeah. You can make a living. You know, a C student is going to pass a course. The C student is going to graduate. It's not going to do that well. Mm. I want to get to what you just said in a moment about listening and, and being a better negotiator, but I want to go back a little bit about emotional intelligence and really honing into that. Cause I feel like that's, that's important. How can, like, what are some tools and strategies that people can implement in their li- own life to actually listen better to their own emotional intelligence? Well, you know, and, and that's kind of it too. I mean, first thing is, is your emotional intelligence is really good. Mm. Like, you know, in any given negotiation, whatever, whatever your gut instinct that's going off in a moment, your gut instinct is actually a reaction of your subconscious mind, your supercomputer. That's where gut instinct comes from. And, and that your subconscious mind has got a massive amount of ability to process data. Like one statistic that I saw in a book called The Biology of Belief. Mm-hmm. The guy said the conscious mind processes 40 bits of information per second. You know, and whatever in computer terminology is a bit is like maybe a syllable, 40 bits per second. The subconscious mind, he said, processes 20 million bits per second. I mean, that's a staggering computing capacity, which is where our our gut instinct or our intuition or our sixth sense, you know, it ain't magic. It's this massive supercomputer collating data and then giving us answers that we don't even realize. Mm. So in, how, what does that have to do in a negotiation? For example, if I get a gun instinct that you think I'm being overly aggressive, my gut instinct is probably good. Where we fall down is what to do with that information. The wrong way would be to say, look, I don't want you to think I'm being greedy here. Or I don't want you to think I'm being overly aggressive. If you're overly aggressive, you're greedy, right? And when we deny the net potential negative outcome, the other side is offended. Mm. Or they blow up. They're at least silently offended, and we'll pick that up in a body language. Or they make out and out blow up on us. So a two millimeter shift that nobody believes until they try it would be to say, Instead of going like, I don't want it to seem like I'm greedy. Black Swan method, we're going to teach you to say, probably looks like I'm greedy. And that's going to instantly change things. People mm-hmm. are horrified to say that because they think the other side's going to say, well, I didn't, but thanks for bringing it up. Now I did. In point of fact, the opposite happens. The other person goes like, wow, this is an honest person. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, wow. 
I'm really impressed with how vulnerable and honest and confident you are simultaneously. Mm. So little things like that. So you, you, you know, what was the rambling answer to? The rambling answer is your gut instinct is your emotional intelligence and it's giving you some good data. What we would do if we were teaching you the black swan method is we would put a different two millimeter shift on what you do with that data, consequently making you a lot more effective. Mm. I think you brought up a good point, listening to the inner voice. And most of the time for a lot of people, that is a very difficult thing to do. And I know I struggle with it and I'm still quite young for many, many years. But then when I did learn to actually hone into it, I found that actually served me better. And when I did learn to listen properly, I found that my life worked out so much better. I felt better as a result too. My relationships only enhanced as well because then it wasn't all about me. It was about other people too. But then I was still listening to what my inner gut was telling me, which was to serve, to be of service to other people. And that sort of led me down the road that I'm doing today and other areas of my life too. So it is a very important aspect of, of one's life. And I think I was, I was actually having a conversation with Derek Gaunt about ego versus authority and mm -hmm. how ego is such a prevalent thing in a lot of people's lives and it stops us from having a good negotiation. And I wanted to ask you, so has there ever been a moment in your life where ego has sort of taken control over a negotiation situation and you've regretted it later on? Yeah. You know, there've been, there've been several different ones. I mean, like at, at any given point in time, and I've, and I've lost control a couple of times to this, where I felt people were diminishing what I was bringing to the table. Mm. Like I'm, I'm, and in the negotiation I was in, I'm, I'm attending a, a meeting in National Security Council when I'm still with the FBI. And we're going through a little bit of a contention. Um, very large corporation represents some people that are being held hostage in another part of the world. And the corporate senior executives are there asking questions of the National Security Council. Now, I know that they know the answers in advance and they're just trying to make a point. So they throw this question out that's directed at me, the FBI rep, and it was on me to answer. And it was, I know in advance, they already knew the answer to the question. They're just trying to surface a concept. Before I answer the State Department, representative speaks up, answers, interrupts me, and provides wrong information. Now, the problem here is, since this corporation already knows the answer, they know this is wrong. So they bring it up again. State Department rep jumps in and interrupts again with the wrong answer. And finally, they ask again, and this time they say, could we please let Chris Voss answer this question? Now, by this point in time, I'm fuming because I've been interrupted twice and I know the information is wrong and just everything about this is wrong. And so I give the correct answer. And then they get the answer and it kind of hangs in the air. Corporate people leave, just National Security Council reps. And I look around the room 
and I unload on them. Like, don't anybody ever speak up on behalf of the FBI that's not in the FBI again. I said, I look around this room, and not only was that directed at the FBI, that was a hostage negotiation question. And when I look around the room, I don't see any other subject matter experts on hostage negotiation in the room. I know more. I'm the only one in this room that I can see that could sit up on a witness stand and be qualified as an expert. Mm. You know, this is my ego. And, you know, your ego gets going and then you get this self-righteous feeling that goes with it. You know, the, the saying, you know, if you give a speech when you're angry, it'd be the greatest speech you ever regret. Yeah. And the State Department punished me over that. I mean, they, and it got back to me that I had humiliated their representatives. And initially I didn't care. But then I thought, look at how this is hurting me. I've done nothing but set fire to these relationships. You know, I've embarrassed people in front of other people. I, my ego got out of control. I mean, I had, and then when I finally recognized how much damage I'd caused because my ego got out of control, and that happens every single time. If I start telling somebody, if we're in a conversation and I start laying out to you why I am special because you have failed to appreciate it, I am in the midst of just absolutely killing myself. Yeah, because you are not going to like it. You're going to at least feel talked down to, if not embarrassed. And that that pain, it, you know, I am winning the battle and I'm losing the war. <laughs> <laughs> and so, imagine, yeah, I've done that. Imagine if both sides, like you had this strong ego and then the other side had ego too, and you're fighting against each other, there's that massive tension. It's absolutely going to go nowhere. So if that was the case for, and I think this has happened to a lot of people, myself included here. So when there is two sides of contention happening, how can we better negotiate out of that situation to have a better outcome for both parties? You know, it depends upon how far out of control you've gotten at the moment. And sometimes the only thing you can really do is just ask for a break. I mean, just just ask for a break. Time out. And, uh, yeah, I had, had a couple of conversations just completely along those lines today uh, because everybody needs to take a breath. Mm. Now, if you tell somebody to take a breath, that comes across as condescending. So you can't say that. And sometimes you just got to say, look, I, you know, I, 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 I need to take a break. I need to take, you tell us, you tell everybody else you need to take a break. I mean, you know, occasionally my son, Brandon, um, you know, you said you, you've interviewed Derek. I don't know if you get a chance to interview. Brandon. I have. Yep. Yeah. Both. All right. So, he runs a company. He's the president of the company. I mean, he's he's really the glue that holds us all together. I, I'm out there. I'm this loose cannon. You know, I'm firing off in all sorts of directions. And he's responsible for keeping the ship on course. And we're very much alike. And so that's both wonderful and horrible simultaneously. 
So, you know, we'll get into a heated conversation. And we both got to the point of saying, like, look, I just, I got to take a break right now because I'm getting ready to say something that is just going to be wrong. So, you know, we don't tell each, we, I don't say to him, you need to take a break. He'll say to me, I need to take a break. Or I'll say to him, look, I, I need to get out of this conversation right now. And, and give us enough time to at least get our feet under us. I mean, so if it's really bad, no matter what conversation you're in, you, you can say, look, I need to take a break. Mm. And the other side is what the other side hears is, you know, I need you at least to stop beating on me. But even that could be accusatory because you might say, well, I'm not beating on you. Mm. You know, if somebody just says, I need to take a break, get a breath, get a moment, both sides are going to have enough time to get their feet back under them. If their heart's in the right place. I mean, if they genuinely want to collaborate. And if you come back and the other side wants to counterattack again immediately, well, they don't want to genuinely collaborate, which is a really good sign that you're in a wrong business relationship or personal relationship. Mm. If you give them a chance to, to get a time out and they don't want to take, take advantage of it, that's probably a good indicator that you guys need to, you guys need to change in your relationship. And, and every time if Brandon and I have gotten um, negatively triggered, you know, uh, 24 hours later, a lot of times all we need is a good night's sleep. Like, Hey, you know, I was out of line. We're on the same team. We want the same things. You know, let's move this forward properly. Mm. Cause sometimes you just, you don't know if it's a bad night's sleep, whether or not that person is going through difficulties in a relationship outside of the one they're in with you you don't know what's actually happening. So it could be a lot of things. And I like the the tip of taking a break, just saying time out, let's go to our corners and try and figure this out and come back when we're all calmer. Cause you're right. Nothing's going to get done when it's just like attacking one another constantly with our words. Um, I want to go towards a time in your life, Chris, where you felt, fearful for your life that you felt like you couldn't get out of this situation. Has it been a moment like that for you? Yeah. Well, you know, fortunately, um, uh, no, mm. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big believer in calculated risk. Um, I, I don't do stuff foolishly. I try stuff that a lot of other people wouldn't try, but I don't try it for the thrill of it. You know, it's a calculated risk. You know, like I drive pretty slowly and pretty carefully. And I will go out of my way to go to an intersection where there's a stoplight so that I don't got to try to make a left turn in traffic. And that's the way I normally drive. Now, if I get someplace I need to be in a hurry, I'm cutting the cars off. I'm pulling out into traffic. I'm daring people to hit me. But that's not the way that I normally drive. If it's if it's important, or in you know my bureau career, I was on a SWAT team. You know, we deployed a raid before I was a negotiator. I was on SWAT. You know, and before I was an FBI agent, I was a police officer. You know, police officers are hanging themselves out and taking a risk of getting ganged up on a regular basis. I've always prided myself at seeing trouble as it was developing, as opposed to being overwhelmed by it. Mm. Calculated risk. Now, 
what is a risk that you have taken within your life personally, like within your family setting that you, that wasn't a calculated risk? Sorry, I should have, I should have phrased the question better. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I can't think of, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'm just anything is actually risky. I don't, I don't know that I'm, uh, you know, I, I think I've been thinking about calculated risk for as far back as I can remember. Mm. And, you know, and so the, you know, there's a phrase, I'm sorry, there's a phrase, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm. So I'm going to conduct myself professionally. It's also going to be the way I conduct myself personally. Mm. I like that saying, when was the moment for you, Chris, that you started thinking about calculated risk. You mentioned that it was for as long as you could remember. Was there someone that taught you about calculated risk or was it just like you figured it out? No, I think, I think I've probably, I've probably been doing it sort of, I hate the term instinctively, but I think I started thinking about it, you know, as a learned thing when I was a police officer. Mm. And then when there was a lot of like system thinking. Like everything is a system and everybody operates in a system. Mm. But until I had to explain it, I didn't really understand. And when, when I was in a crisis negotiation, especially when I got transferred, it became a full-time job. We, we got very much into doing assessment and recommendations. We call them negotiation position papers. And it was just an analytical approach. And it was the application of system thinking. And you have to make a recommendation. Uh, in a crisis. So what you're doing is you're analyzing risk and then essentially you're placing a bet. Like this, this is what we think the risk level is. And this is what we think is our best chance of either dealing with the risk or deactivating it. So by definition, every one of those was a calculated bet or calculated risk. A little bit like being on a casino table in Las Vegas. Um, you know, you're, 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 you're placing a bet based on the cards or the chips or the dice yeah. as you see them. Mm. I want to sort of ask you for the time we have left about knowing when someone is telling the truth versus when someone is lying and actually applying that to a better negotiation. So can you share how we are able to determine whether someone is actually lying to you by our, our body language. What are the, what are the things to look out for firstly? Cause I know there's some people that are very good at hiding it. Like you gotta be very like good at looking for it. <laughs> um, would you be able to share some of those? Yeah. Well, you know, the real short answer is um, you could lie anyone to seven or eight different ways. Like, you know, one, one of my favorite things, you know, Jimmy Kimmel has a talk show out of Los Angeles and every now and then he goes out on the street and they call it lie witness news. <laughs> and it's hysterical because they get, they get people to, to tell them lies, um, stuff that they know are lies. Like one that I got a kick out of, it was, they did it around Super Tuesday, you know, it was primary voting in the United States. And Super Tuesday was the day when a whole bunch of states were voting in a primary. Now, everybody knows in California that their voting primaries are on Super Tuesday. If the, but if they're not paying attention, they don't know there's more than one Super Tuesday. 
And so there may have been a lot of discussion in the media, but it might not have been Super Tuesday for California. So they go out, it was Super Tuesday, but it wasn't California Super Tuesday. And they walk up to people, they put a mic in their face, and they say, hey, Super Tuesday today. Did you vote today? And a person would go, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, that's really cool. What was it like down at the vote, the polling booth, at the voting uh, location? Like, were people happy? And they'd go, yeah, everybody was happy. Well, cool. Who'd you vote for? I voted for Hillary. You know, so like, like now they know this is a lie because there's no voting in California. But the point of the and the, and the entertainment of the episode was each different lie they told, they probably told it with different body language. The point is, if you lie, you probably lie with about seven to 35 different what they poker people would call tells, body language cues. Now, the flip side of that is is people, if you tell the truth, you tell the truth one way. And that's the whole point of a polygraph. If somebody puts you on a polygraph, they ask you questions like, what day is it? What's your name? Where are you? What did you have for breakfast? What they're doing is they're showing the pattern of the way you tell the truth. If you tell the truth, you'll tell it the same way every time. Now, all those different wires and sensors that are taking into account all the different ways you can lie, all they know when you lied is you did something different. You might have looked down. You might have looked up. You might not have blinked. You might have held your breath. You did something different. So the short answer is in your interactions, figure out what somebody looks like when they're telling the truth. That's really the only purpose for small talks. Hey, you know, what was your drive like today, you know? You know, uh, you know, my, what, I don't even eat breakfast anymore. Uh, do you eat breakfast? Mm-hmm. You know, I can be using that to lay down the one way that you tell the truth. Now, the other thing about the truth that correlates really strongly, and again, the word correlation is important, is the more I talk to convince you, you know, we refer to this as a Pinocchio effect. Yeah. The more words I use, that correlates with lying. And me being really concise or even being angry at you, because I know I told the truth. And if you are not smart enough to realize that I'm telling you the truth, then that makes you an idiot. Mm -hmm. Now, that's offensive in application. And most people, they don't realize that the person is really confirming that they're being honest. And they're so offended at being talked to like they're an idiot then their default response is, well, okay, so now I know you're lying because you offended. Mm. But, you know, concise, even slightly angrier answers correlate, not direct causation, but correlate with honesty. Mm. Have you ever, this is being complete honest, have you ever lied in a major negotiation setting that ended up working out in your favor? Now, lying never works out in your favor, and I'm I'm completely against it. Yeah. Lying is starting the fuse on a ticking time bomb. Yeah, it's only a matter when that baby blows up on you. And I am not. It's I got enough problems as it is. 
I mean, I make all the mistakes I need to make. I don't need to add to them by lying. I am not in favor of lying. Yeah. I don't, and I, I get asked that all the time. You know, the academics used to love to ask me that in the early days before the book came out, a hostage negotiator. I'd be up at Harvard on a panel. Some Harvard professor would be like, so, has the terrorist got a nuclear bomb? <laughs> and you got the opportunity, if you lie to him, he won't set the bomb off. Are you trying to tell me that you're not going to lie to him? And my answer is, I'm not going to lie to him. How can you say that? And I'll say, well, number one, they're probably a better liar than I am anyway. And they're testing me to see if I'm going to lie. And this is a trap and a setup. And I am not interested in falling into that trap. And they always go, oh, I never thought of that. I'm like, of course you didn't. Because you're an academic and you think this stuff up in your head. And you don't spend enough time in the real world. In a real world, lying backfires. Yeah. That's what I've noticed all the time. Whether or not it hurts someone else, but for the most part, it hurts you. And you're not going to live a happy or fulfilled life at all if you're constantly lying to others and yourself. You know, one of the sayings that I hate the most is fake it till you make it. Because all that is doing is saying, lie to yourself until you get to the place where you are, quote, successful. But then when you get there, you're going to be the most unfulfilled than before you even started. I mean, but people are teaching that all the time. It frustrates me no end because integrity, my grandfather used to tell me all the time, be a person of integrity. It doesn't matter what situation you're in. Honesty is always the best solution and you're not going to create larger problems. I mean, I think my grandfather was one of the best negotiators um, I've ever had the pleasure of, of knowing <laughs> aside from you, Chris. Um, but yeah, it's just, I think it's a, it's an important uh, message to send to people is just be honest. So thank you for sharing that. I agree completely. And, and I would not be shocked that your grandfather was a great negotiator because Integrity needs to be a principal currency of a great negotiator. Yeah, he was. I mean, he he taught me so much about life, but he he was like one of those people that if he if he wanted something, nothing would stop him from getting it. Like he would just go for it. He would do it honestly and do the right thing all the time, but he got it eventually. <laughs> It was just one of those people. So yeah, brings back a lot of memories. But uh, with a couple more questions for you, Chris, if you don't mind, when don't when in your life has been the most vulnerable for you, whether you felt the most vulnerable? Wow. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, you know, when I really started to catch on to how hard the transition from the public sector to the private sector was going to be. Mm. Um, you know, probably two, two, two parts. Like when I first left uh, uh, the FBI and the government, you know, back to school, you know, I'm working on a master's degree. And there were a lot of really talented people around. And I had to go from, you know, for the, Five years up to that point, 
like every room I walked into, I was the most significant voice in that room. And I, and like, and like if, if I'm in a room, we're talking about kidnapping, we're talking about a hostage negotiation and how much I know and my recommendations are going to be at least as strong as anybody's and there are going to be few that are as strong as mine. And then I start walking into rooms where people could care less what I had to say. They didn't know who I was and they just didn't care. And, you know, I went from, I, I never had to speak up loudly previously because people want to hear what I have to say. Then to them having utterly no interest in what I had to say. And I'm thinking like, ah, this is going to take some getting used to. <laughs> they don't care what I did. If I told them what I did, they still wouldn't care. You know, so then, then I was like, I was suddenly, you know, my resume was irrelevant. Mm. And, you know, I had stripped away. I felt defenseless for that. And, and then, then as we went further into it, I mean, people in the public sector just really, they see the private sector and, and they buy stuff. You know, I buy a car, I buy a house, I buy in a private, from a private sector all the time. You know, they get no idea how challenging it is to be in business or what all you're dealing with, mm. which is why very few really successful public officials, very few make it in a private sector. They turn around, they, they, they go right back to some other job in a public sector because it is so different. And that took a long time. It was another one. Thank God. Thank God that Brandon was part of the company the whole time. I mean, if it wasn't for Brandon Voss, you wouldn't know who the heck Chris Voss is. Because you, you want to go far, go, or you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. You know, he's been my wingman from the very beginning. Mm. Wow. And Brandon is um is a great human being. I can't speak highly enough of the guy. I mean, I loved our conversation. I think we had it a couple of months ago now just the way he explained certain areas of negotiation, it made so much sense. Like it was, it was like, imagine I was the dumbest person on the, on the face of the earth. He made the, made me feel smart. <laughs> like that's, that's how I, I felt going into it. So yeah, I have, I, I completely understand like, but it's amazing how, you know, you've gone from the, the private sector almost into this public sphere and you've done so well at it like it's honestly an amazing achievement and i'm, I'm grateful that that, that actually happened <laughs> and i think so many other people are grateful as well so yeah it's it's amazing i i i got a i got a great team you know brandon derek you know then then you know my now daughter-in-law now brandon's now wife maya I mean, she was really the third person we added to the team. We joke around like if she hadn't come along, the two of us would still be yelling at each other on the boat that I lived on. <laughs> Nobody around. Uh, I love you it. Know, so we got a we got a core team. I mean, I I got I you know I know people that are lone entrepreneurs, and I watch them struggle by themselves and solve the problems themselves. And I'm like, wow, I got a team. Yeah. You know, I don't got to do this by myself. Mm. Mm, I have, um, yeah, two final questions for you, Chris, if you don't mind. Sure, happy to. What would you say that you, oh, okay, 
what do you love the most about your story and yourself? Um, you know, I'm a regular guy. You know, and I know that this whole persistence thing is a cliche. You know, I would combine persistence with, you know, willingness to learn, coachability. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you persistent? You could be persistent, never change your ways, you know, repeating the same behavior, expecting a different result is insane. Right. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from a, I'm from a blue collar background, middle-class blue collar, you know, my, I mean, and I mean, blue collar, my father, he used to go out in the middle of the night, he fixed furnaces in the Midwestern United States. He'd go out at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of the winter because somebody's furnace had broken down. They're going to be without heat. And he'd get his tools and he'd go and get dirty, fix it, dive it into that furnace. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a regular dude. Anybody is capable of going a really long way if they're just willing to persevere and learn. I mean, you got to learn. And you, you got to keep at it. And, you know, the, the movie The Founder about Ray Kroc and McDonald's. At the very beginning of the movie, he's alone in a cheap hotel while he's a door-to-door traveling salesman making no money by himself. And he's listening to a motivational record about perseverance. And then when he's Ray Kroc billionaire and he's out to give a speech to people, same speech, perseverance. And he learned along the way and he adapted. But yeah, I think you, you know, perseverance and, and learning, that really kind of no limit as to, uh, uh, you're certainly going to out, out, outwork, outdo everybody else mm. who, who chose not to learn and or chose not to persevere. I have five P's that I live by every single day. The first one is persistence. And I completely understand the the idea of you know if you've got to be coachable but the way i use it is if i'm not persistently learning new things then i will get stuck then i have the other the other piece which is persistently practice prayer with patience and perseverance and you will get through it will all be okay in the end anyway and if it's not it'll still be okay (laughs) like but those those are the areas that i look at in my life and then I break it all down. So persistence is for me the key with all the other areas. So if I'm not persistent, then I won't show up, I won't learn, I won't do the things necessary to practice, to you know do other, other things, like I won't even persevere. So yeah, I, I completely, completely agree with you on that front. Yeah, I like that, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Those, are, those, are good, those are good peas. Yeah. You mentioned your father for, for just a moment. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this. What was the, the greatest lesson that your father taught you? Yeah, just, just uh, work hard and figure it out. I mean, it was kind of those two things. Mm. And he always led by example. I mean, we got to work hard and you got to figure it out. Yeah. You know, if something needed doing and he didn't know how to do it, he had no problem asking you to do it because he'd do it himself. And if he had to figure it out, his thought was, well, 
you know, I never heard him say this. I'm sure that he just figured he was a regular guy that kind of the way I do. You know, I'm not born with a gift of intelligence. So ain't going to be any easier for me to figure it out than it is for you. So go ahead and figure it out because I got something else I got to take care of. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was really work hard and figure stuff. I can relate to that. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Before I ask you the final question, where can people find you, connect with you, buy your book, never split the difference, all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, go to our website, blackswanltd.com. Mm. Yeah. We, we got a gold mine there of, we got a lot of free stuff. Like wherever you are in your negotiation journey, we're prepared to meet you where you are. We, we got courses specifically for women. We got Sandy Hine is a coach that we brought on about a year ago. She does some, some called the women's power hour. So she, you know, she's going to put her, her, her take on it as a woman or what a woman would tell another woman. Um, we get the thing with negotiation is a perishable skill. You know, Jim Camp used to call it a human performance event. He wrote Start With No. We collaborated with Jim for a long time. Which means that wherever you are in your negotiation skills tomorrow, you're either going to be the same, you're going to be better, or you're going to be worse. Now, two out of three of those choices require some effort. And with inattention, if it's a human performance skill, and it is, if you're not doing something, you're going to be worse. Mm. And we help people find the little things to sharpen their skills. Mm. I love the website. There's so much useful information on there. Uh, I encourage people to go and get it. Same with the book. Love the book, by the way. Great read, very entertaining, lots of useful information in there. Chris, my final question for you, this is my all-time favorite question. I ask all my guests. For, forgive me, I, I went on such a tangent that did I actually spell out what the website is? I'm not sure that I... BlackSwanLTD.com. BlackSwanLTD. And if people just search up your name as well, Chris Voss, then everything comes up anyway. So you're not hard to find at all. Very good. And if they type in never split the difference, that comes up too. So Google is your best friend in that situation. (laughs) So, um, but this is uh, one of my favorite questions. Okay. So imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Yeah, you know, I think I think um, uh, the moments I probably want to relive, uh, you know, seeing Brandon do well. Um, collaborating with Derek, um, you know, bringing the people into the company that were happier with us than they were in their previous job. It would be, it'd be different ways than, you know, that I help people enjoy their life. Chris Voss, thank you so much for your time today, sir, and for coming on the Storybox podcast. My pleasure, Jay. Thanks for having me on. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. 
I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.